your host, Anna Danino, and welcome to episode 5 of the Crime Bistro podcast. This show gazes into the thrillingly twisted world of true crime, examining real cases while we share in a passion for crime and coffee alike. For this episode, I am enjoying an iced vanilla latte, so grab yourself a fresh brew and let's get into the infamous case of the Zodiac Killer. The Zodiac Killer is one of America's most infamous serial killers who was active during the 1960s and 1970s in the area near San Francisco. He murdered at least five people and mostly attacked couples in secluded areas. The Zodiac Killer is famous for the letters that he sent police following his crimes, and in one of his last letters to news media he claimed that he had 37 victims, but this number can likely never be confirmed. To provide a bit more context, the Zodiac Killer, like I said, has become notorious for his letters, which he would write to newspapers and police departments, demanding that they be published. These letters would sometimes include physical evidence from a crime scene, and they were sent from 1969 to 1974, signed with the cross-circle symbol. He also sent newspapers four cryptograms, which he claimed included his identity. And the Zodiac Killer is also infamous for giving himself that name, His letters typically began with the phrase, this is the Zodiac speaking, and also for the cross-circle symbol he used, which has become widely recognized, although an explanation for the symbol has never been put forth. The Zodiac Killer's first suspected murders were committed on December 20th of 1968, and this was an attack on a young couple, David Faraday, who was 17, and Betty Lou Jensen, who was 16. The two were in a gravel parking area along the remote Lake Herman Road, east of Vallejo, California, and this was the first date that Betty had ever been allowed on. The two were approached by the Zodiac at around 11.15pm while they were in David's station wagon, and he fired into the vehicle in a possible attempt to force the two to exit the car. Betty left the car through the front passenger door, and David followed her in exiting the vehicle, David was shot as he left the car, suffering one gunshot to the head at point-blank range, and he died within only minutes of sustaining this injury. Betty was shot five times in the back as she was trying to flee the scene on foot, and she also died instantly from her wounds. The weapon used in this attack was a twenty-two caliber semi-automatic pistol, and the ammunition was Winchester Western Super X copper-coated long rifle. One of the more disturbing aspects of this attack was the lack of indication of robbery or any other common motivation for attacks that are otherwise seemingly random. There was no motive for police to offer the families under than the simple enjoyment that the killer derived from their actions. Other suspects have been considered in these murders, and a former Vallejo Police Department detective named John Lynch even speculated that the couple was killed because Faraday had information about a major drug deal that he was sharing openly. People have also wondered about the Zodiac Killer's involvement because no letters or phone calls from the killer were received until months had passed since the crime, but when the Zodiac did take credit for the attack, they provided details that were not known to the general public. The second attack accredited to the Zodiac Killer occurred on July 5th of 1969 in the parking lot of Blue Rock Springs Park on the the eastern outskirts of Vallejo, California. The Zodiac Killer again targeted a couple, Darlene Farron, who was 22, and Mike Majot, who was 19 years old. At the time, Darlene was married and working as a waitress at Terry's Restaurant, and Mike was single, working as a laborer. Darlene's husband, Dean, was initially a suspect, as well as her first husband, whose name was James Crabtree, 
but they were both found to have no involvement. Mike did survive this attack, and he was able to provide police the full story of his experiences on that day. According to him, the two had parked at the isolated location to talk, when at about 12.10 a.m. a light brown car approached, either a Ford Mustang or a Chevrolet Covert. A man with a flashlight approached the two, and they prepared their identifications, thinking that he was a police officer. However, without warning, he opened fire on the couple. Initially, he fired five bullets in total and then returned to his car. Mike exclaimed in pain, and when the man heard that he was still alive, he returned and fired an additional four shots, two at Mike and two at Darlene. Mike was able to get a good look at him when he returned the second time and described him as a white male, approximately five foot eight or five foot nine, in his late twenties to early thirties, with a stocky build, round face, and brown hair. Darlene had been shot a total of five times, and she did not survive her injuries, while Mike was shot a total of four times. And the weapon in this case was determined to be a 9mm semi-automatic pistol. About 45 minutes after the shootings, the Vallejo PD received a call from a man claiming responsibility for the crime. The man identified the weapon correctly as a 9mm pistol, and also took credit for the Faraday-Jensen murders from December 20th. On July 31st of 1969, letters were sent to the Vallejo Times-Herald, San Francisco Examiner, and San Francisco Chronicle from a person claiming to be the killer in both crimes, including details that the killer themselves could only know. And I would like to note that police oftentimes keep certain details from the public for this purpose, being able to identify when a possible suspect has information that wouldn't otherwise be available. Each of these letters contained one-third of a cipher that supposedly, if it was solved, would reveal the killer's name, and this marked the beginning of a stream of letters that would continue for over five years, though the killer had not yet identified himself as the Zodiac. The next confirmed victims of the Zodiac killer were Cecilia Shepard, who was 22 years old at the time, and Brian Hartnell, who was 20. This attack occurred on September 27th of 1969 at around 6.15 p.m. on the shoreline of Lake Berryessa near Napa, California. The couple was relaxing at a remote location by the lake when Cecilia noticed a man in an unusual costume approaching them holding a gun. He appeared heavily built and around six feet tall. This man claimed that he was a prison escapee from either Montana or Colorado and that he needed money and a car in order to flee to Mexico. Brian offered the man his wallet and car keys, but he didn't accept them, and after several minutes of conversation, the man tied up the couple with lengths of plastic clothesline and began attacking them with a knife, later determined to be a knife with a wooden handle and a blade that was 10 to 12 inches long. Brian was attacked first and sustained six stab wounds to his back, and Cecilia was attacked after, stabbed five times to the front of her body and five times to the back of her body. After this, the man walked casually away from the scene, and after several minutes, a fisherman in the area heard the couple screaming for help and told park rangers. By the time that help arrived, the two had managed to untie themselves, and it took nearly an hour for the ambulance to arrive, at which time both Brian and Cecilia were in critical condition. Just over an hour after the stabbings, the Napa Police Department received a call from a man taking credit for the crime and they were able to trace the call to a phone booth in downtown Napa and collect fingerprints while other deputies were responding to the crime scene. 
At the scene, they found a message written on the car door that the couple had traveled in, including the dates of the two previous attacks and the cross circle symbol. Tire tracks found at the scene showed that the attacker had parked behind the victim's car, and size 10.5 Wayne Walker shoe prints were recovered, which police determined indicated that the attacker weighed over 210 pounds. Cecilia died from her injuries within 48 hours after the attack, and Brian was able to recover, later becoming an attorney in Southern California. Brian gave many interviews in the years after the attack describing his experiences, but he no longer discusses it publicly. This attack is similar to the other two in that no clear motive other than simply violence could be identified for the crime, which adds to the horrifying nature of this killer. Police came to believe after this event that they were dealing with a seriously warped individual who had grown bored with simply killing people and was turning to increasingly bizarre behaviors to achieve the same level of satisfaction. The final confirmed victim of the Zodiac Killer was Paul Stein, who was killed on October 11th of 1969 at around 9.55 p.m. at the northeast corner of Washington and Cherry Streets in the Presidio Heights neighborhood of San Francisco. Paul Stein was a 29-year-old cab driver whose cab was hailed with the intended destination being Washington and Maple Streets. For an unknown reason, the cab ended up at Washington and Cherry Streets, which was a block away from this original destination. Paul was shot once in the head at point-blank range, and his wallet and keys were taken in the attack, as well as a large part of his shirt being torn off. Police were able to recover from some evidence from the car, including bloody fingerprints and a pair of men's size 7 black leather gloves. This incident did have three witnesses who saw the scene from about 60 feet away as the suspect was wiping down the car after Paul had been shot. These witnesses described a white man who was 25 to 30 years old, 5'8 to 5'9, and of a stocky build with reddish-brown hair that was styled in a crew cut. They also mentioned that he was wearing heavy-rimmed glasses and dark clothing, and that he casually walked north on Cherry Street away from the scene. Frustratingly, the police dispatcher made an error describing the suspect as a black male adult, so when officers Donald Folk and Eric Zelms observed a white man walking east on Jackson Street, he was not stopped for questioning. However, the officers later realized that the man fit the correct description of the Zodiac Killer. A search of the area was conducted after this, but nothing was found. Originally, police didn't consider this crime to be the work of the Zodiac Killer, likely because it didn't fit his previous crimes and was an attack on only a singular victim. However, on October 13th of 1969, the San Francisco Chronicle received a letter from the Zodiac Killer that contained a portion of Bloody's shirt and took credit for the attack. The shirt was tested and it was found that it was, in fact, the missing fabric from the crime scene. The Zodiac later claimed that he had actually spoken with patrolmen that night and that he had led them astray in their search for their suspect, and this was confirmed about a month after the attack by Officer Folk. The famous composite sketch of the Zodiac Killer was created a few days after Paul was killed, using the witness descriptions which was circulated through the entire Bay Area, and this case was actually closed in 2004, which was quite the controversial decision at the time, understandably. There are two other possible victims of the Zodiac Killer, which are currently unconfirmed but are definitely worth mentioning. The first is Ray Davis, who was killed on April 10th of 1962 at about 11.20 p.m. in Oceanside, California. 
He was a cab driver for the Checkered Cab Company who picked up a fare at a downtown cab stand in Oceanside, notifying his dispatcher that he was delivering the fare to a location in South Oceanside, and that notification was the last that anyone ever heard from him. Ray's body was found the next morning in the upscale neighborhood of St. Malo, and he had been shot twice by a 22 caliber gun from the back seat of the cab, sustaining gunshot wounds to his head and his back. His body was found disposed of in an alley, and the killer escaped in the cab, leaving it at 400 South Pacific Street. In this case, Ray was not robbed, so no clear motive was ever able to be identified, which is consistent with the other Zodiac attacks. And other similarities with the Zodiac Killer cases include that the killer called the police in advance to warn them that he would be committing a crime, then called again after Ray's death to threaten targeting a bus driver. Additionally, the use of a 22 caliber weapon and long rifle ammunition in the same crime is consistent with the Zodiac Killer's other attacks. Another likely victim of the Zodiac Killer was Sherry Josephine Bates, who was killed between 9.23 p.m. on October 30th and 12.23 a.m. on October 31st of 1966 in an alley on the campus of Riverside City College in Riverside, California. She was found stabbed to death multiple times with a short-bladed knife, and her throat had been cut, but there was no evidence of robbery or any other clear motive for the crime. A men's Timex watch was found at the scene, along with a military-style heel print that indicated a size 8 to 10 shoe. The watch was found to be of military origin, and it was ripped from the perpetrator's wrist during a struggle and stopped at 12.24 a.m. However, the exact time of the crime is still unknown. In November of 1970, Zodiac detectives from the Bay Area met with investigators from Sherry's case, and they concluded that the Zodiac was the killer. The Zodiac killer sent a letter to the Los Angeles Times that was postmarked March 13, 1971, claiming responsibility for the crime. Other similarities that indicate his involvement in this case is a confession letter mailed anonymously to Riverside Police on November 29th of 1966, including details from the murder that hadn't been released to the public. In December of 1966, a desk in the college library was found with a morbid poem scratched into the surface, and that writing was attributed to the Zodiac. Three other letters were sent anonymously from Riverside on April 30, 1967, one of which was sent to Sherry's father, which have also been attributed to the Zodiac Killer. The original investigation did conclude that the Zodiac was responsible for Sherry's death, however, this is still under investigation currently in 2021. Although it was incredibly famous at the time, Today, this case has once again hit headlines in a major way as an independent group of cold case investigators, the Case Breakers, have claimed that they identified the notorious killer. The Case Breakers is a team of over 40 former investigators, journalists, and military intelligence officers who have also investigated famous cases such as D.B. Cooper. They claim to have identified the Zodiac Killer as Gary Francis Post who passed away in 2018. They have cited evidence from Post's dark room, which revealed an image that features scars on Post's forehead that match scars from a sketch of the Zodiac. They also claim to have deciphered letters sent by the Zodiac, and according to Jem, Jen Buschholz, a former 
Army counterintelligence agent who works on cold cases. In one note, the letters of Post's full name were removed to reveal an alternate message, as she told Fox News. In releasing their findings, the casebreakers also mentioned that they firmly believe that Sherry Bates was the Zodiac's sixth victim. The FBI has come forward to refute this claim, saying, quote, the case remains open and there is no new information to report, end quote. A Riverside police officer, Ryan Railsback, also told NBC News that they had ruled out a connection between Sherry Bates and the Zodiac, and in August, the Riverside police said an anonymous letter received in 2016 tying the Bates case to the Zodiac was a hoax. Railsback also stated that, quote, if you read what they, the casebreakers, put out, it's all circumstantial evidence. It's not a whole lot, end quote. While it is exciting to imagine that this infamous case could reach a concrete conclusion, I do have to take the side of law enforcement here, and I agree that the evidence implicating Gary Post is much too circumstantial to give a conclusive answer. However, even if this case will remain unsolved, the rediscovered interest in media attention will hopefully give people the engagement with this decades-old mystery that it's needed and give law enforcement the extra edge to be able to bring someone to justice and give the victim's family some closure. As of now, the Zodiac Killer is still a shadow figure in the world of true crime, but we hope that no one can hide forever and that the reinvigoration of interest in the case will be the difference in getting this case finally solved. With that being said, thank you for listening to this week's episode, and if you are interested in looking further into the Zodiac Killer, all of the source materials and articles will be listed in the show notes on crimebistro.com. Also be sure to visit the podcast on Instagram for behind-the-scenes updates at Crime Bistro Podcast. And as always, until next time. Mm-hmm.